0: Hello, and welcome to A Glimpse Into The Future. My name is Riga Sajilakos, and in this podcast series, I talk to some of the world's leading experts to better understand how new technologies and ideas will shape our future. In this episode, I talk to Alex Wyatt, founder and CEO of August Robotics, a company committed to integrating people-friendly robotic solutions into day-to-day life. Alex is also a member of the World Economic Forum's Council on the Future of Artificial Intelligence and Robotics. Alex, you were a successful entrepreneur in alternative energy solutions and now you decided to move into robotics. Uh, why is that? What, what, is, what drove you to,
1: to robotics? Uh, well, I think probably the, the unusual aspect for me uh, was going to renewable energy. Uh, my undergraduate degree is in robotics and since a small child I've always uh, been very interested in robotics and, and dreamed of having a robots company and I've <laughs> finally gotten around to it. So really excited about the future.
0: Well, we're very happy because this way we can have you in our council and, and, and share your, your ideas with the world. And what what is the entrepreneurial ecosystem around robotics looking like right now, and what is the trend? Uh,
1: well, I mean, I think robotics, even in our council, uh, robotics and, and AI are often viewed together, uh, and, and I think that makes sense because, you know, robots are obviously going to be a whole lot more effective if they are artificially intelligent than otherwise. Uh, however, if you look at it from a um, entrepreneurial perspective, they're actually very, very different uh, because artificial is companies are really just software companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know the most important thing for entrepreneurial companies, particularly in the early days, is to raise capital. And the venture capital industry is, is very, very well adapted to raising money into software companies. And there's established norms and criteria and, and all sorts of um, milestones and what have you that, that make that relatively straightforward. Um, I think the venture capital industry has been shown to be much less effective uh, when there's uh, physical manifestations of technology, um, when it's not purely software. So examples in in clean tech and and even in pharmaceutical uh, companies, uh, the VC model, which is very adapted for software, um, doesn't work as well. And so I think um, being an entrepreneur in robotics is probably a lot more challenging. Uh, than being an entrepreneur uh, in artificial intelligence just simply because of the availability of capital Mm -hmm. and and robotics companies in particular Require a lot of capital uh, because you know every time you make a mistake It doesn't mean that the the routine crashes it means that you have to go and get some new circuitry, right? It's it's a lot more expensive uh, And therefore uh, access to capital is really important albeit difficult.
0: Do you see the last you know, five years, there has been a significant rise in the popularity of the topic of uh, robotics and I? Uh, have you seen uh, a difference in behavior from the investors in, the, in this ecosystem?: uh, Look, people
1: are really interested in robotics. I think yeah. investors are really interested in robotics, um, and a lot of them put themselves out as, yes, we definitely want to invest in robotics, um, but you know that. The VC industry has very strong norms about, you know, when a company should be cash flow positive, by um, how much money it, it should should spend every month, and what have you, which is very adapted to software businesses. Uh, even even the sort of fund life uh, of of the VC funds themselves mm-hmm. uh, is is predicated upon assumptions that really are driven from the software industry. So whilst I think a lot of people are very interested in investing in robotics, uh, when they get into the details of how long it may take or what the revenue models are going to look like, then they tend to shy away. Which is why we see not a lot of entrepreneurial companies in robotics and that most of the the advances so far in robotics have been from really big companies. Mm -hmm. So if you you look at Japan, which is probably the world's leader in robotics at the moment, um, you know, ASIMO, fantastic uh, example of sophisticated robotics technology, it's made by a massive multi, a multinational in Honda. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, similarly, I think uh, Pepper is, uh, yeah, is a, another terrific humanoid robot that you see all over Japan now, uh, owned and developed, um, certainly the latest version, uh, by SoftBank, uh, the largest mo- mobile phone uh, company in Japan as well. And so I think these companies that are large and have uh, large amounts of capital uh, are, f- are very well adapted to, to developing robotics, and therefore we don't see as many... Um, small entrepreneurial companies competing in that space as we do perhaps in software.
0: So obviously there must be a catch to that, right? There must be some some opportunities uh, for, for the new entrepreneurs in the robotics world that they can offer something different to the big robotics companies uh, and they, they have some competitive advantage. What what would that be? Look,
1: oh, absolutely there are and I certainly wouldn't be uh, starting my own robotics company if I didn't think there were some, uh, some really terrific and exciting opportunities uh, in it for entrepreneurs. And really the key about it I think is is to work out a way not to fight against the way in which the entrepreneurial ecosystem is set up with the venture capital firms, uh, but to work, not to fight against that, but to work work out a way in which you can swim with that tide. Mm-hmm. So essentially to to find a way to run a robotics company like you would run a software company. And if you can do that, then you can really, um, you can fit in with all of the, uh, the milestones and the assumptions that the, that the capital industry has, and therefore you can get money in. And if you do get money into your company uh, and you're, you're able to get started, uh, I think you're in a much better position then than your colleagues in, as, as software entrepreneurs uh, because, you know, the barriers to entry are higher because it's harder to do that, as we've talked about in, in the challenges. Um, and that means there are fewer competitors. And it also means that there's a lot more virgin territory. Robotics is a really new area. Um, and as a result, there are a lot of things that can be done uh, in, in the robotics area that will be beneficial for, for, for society, beneficial for businesses, beneficial for consumers, haven't been done yet. And so there's an enormous amount of opportunity for entrepreneurial companies to seek out uh, new and different ways in which robotics can be um, can assist people mm-hmm. and make successful businesses.
0: Take us a bit into that future from, from your viewpoint. Obviously, we all know about automated vehicles and personal assistance, mm-hmm. uh, but how does it look in the world of robotics in the next 10 to 15 years? What are some of the
1: innovations we can expect coming yeah. out? I mean, my view on it is that a lot of the areas in which in 10 or 15 years will really be transformational uh, in terms of society, we're seeing the, the green shoots of that already. Right? I don't think there'll be too many sort of completely new areas that we haven't seen, but there will be completely new ways and ideas of, of operating in those areas. So for example, I mean, I think um, aged care will be an enormous uh, uh, usage of, of robotics in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, you only have to look at um, the difficulty in which uh, a lot of c- developed countries have in terms of finding sufficient people already uh, to staffed aged care centres, and then you look at ageing populations in, in Japan and China and, and around the world, um, I think there's um, enormous demand uh, for additional uh, assistance uh, to people in, in aged care facilities. And I think the way in which we deal with that as a society now is that we actually just expect those aged people to do a lot of things for themselves. There are a lot of things that, at the moment, we don't, because the help isn't available, because you would need to have, you know, a full-time carer, and no-one can afford that, and actually the society can't afford that, because if half the population is uh, aged and you've got, and everyone needs a full-time carer, well, there's no-one left to to work in the actual, in the full economy, so the individuals can't afford it and the society can't afford it. But if that care was available, it would enhance the quality of life for those those elderly people. So I'm thinking about um, enforcement of, medical regimes, I'm talking about assistance in bathing, um, I'm talking about um, uh, uh, monitoring, uh, you know, elderly people that fall over or they get lost or, or, or various mm-hmm. other things, um, washing their clothes, preparing their food when they just can't go out and they want to stay at home and they don't want to live in a, um, in, in a facility. There are all sorts of opportunities in, in aged care and I think we'll see them, uh, just in part because of really strong societal demand, we'll see them bloom over the next 10 to 15 years. Um, another area that I think is we're seeing a little bit of already, uh, but I think is probably often a little bit neglected, um, probably because of all of the hype about autonomous vehicles, is human and robot cooperation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I saw a really interesting um, uh, conceptual uh, um, example of this in the, in the robotics for good competition that's held in the United Arab Emirates uh, every year. Uh, as a judge last year in the in the Robotics for Good Competition. There was this fascinating entry of an emergency services robot uh, that went in it was, a, it was a firefighting robot. And it went into um, you know into a burning building that you know that you wouldn't send a fireman into because you, you wouldn't be the first responder because you as yet uncertain whether there's too much smoke or a beam may fall and hit the hit the firefighter on the head or what have you. The robot would go in there. Now if that robot was completely autonomous, it would have there was no way we could program it to be able to to deal with all the different things that could happen, right? There's there's so much uh, ambiguity and uncertainty that we just would never. It would be very very difficult to program that. So what this the, the approach that this uh, this group took was they had a firefighter in a virtual reality suit in a safe truck 20 meters away, and he would he would then look at what was happening through the robot's eyes and then move his arms in a certain way and the robot would earn would move his arm in a uh, in, in a in a concordant fashion and he would take a step in a certain direction and the robot would move in that direction and what that's then doing is combining the, the robot's ability to function in an environment that a human can't function or is unsafe for a human to function. But you're getting all the benefit of human experience and human decision-making in terms of how do you how do you react to something unexpected, like a beam falling in front of you or a fire blowing up out of that door. And, and of course, obviously, um, you know, the worst that can go wrong is that you need to rebuild the robot rather than someone being injured or, or, or worse. And, and I think this sort of, um, this trend of using human decision making to overcome uh, the deficiencies in, of ro- in robots in, in dealing with unexpected situations, uh, I think is something that we'll see a lot more of over the next 10 to 15 years.
0: Very fascinating. Uh, I wanted to, to come back to the point you, you, that you just made. Uh, you said that one of the areas that we expect this uh, this uh, impact of robotics to be aged care and I imagine general mental health care and, and these kind of uh, things that we have started seeing yet. Do you, as a developer, how much do you think about the the ethics, ethical questions that are involved in, in the development of these kind of robots? I mean, uh, in the sense... Of somebody getting over attached to a machine, okay. uh, people not needing anymore to, to connect with humans because they have uh, and always with them uh, somebody that they, or something yep. that they think is somebody. Uh, we, we had these kind of discussions in, in a couple of interviews, and I would like your views as a developer. Yeah. Uh, where, where do you draw the line?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, as a developer, I'm obviously biased, um, but I would say specifically around aged care robots. Uh, I think it's much less of an issue than than for others, mm-hmm. in the sense that I mean, you know, one of the the great problems in in being aged, and you speak to a lot of people um, at that stage of life, uh, is our feelings of loneliness.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So if there is attachment to a to a robot, personally speaking, I don't I don't have a problem with that. I don't mm-hmm. I don't see it crowding out uh, interpersonal relations. I think I see it supplementing interpersonal relations. I mean, you don't say um, I, don't, I won't allow my grandmother to have a dog because she may get attached to that dog and therefore she won't want to talk to me anymore. Mm-hmm. It's just it's great because she has more company and she has more connection with her with her pet dog. Um, now if, if she becomes attached to to her, her robot or to her assistants in a in a certain certain fashion. I see that as additive rather than substitutive of interpersonal relationships. Now, personally speaking I don't think it's gonna happen uh, because my personal view is that over the ten to fifteen year time time frame um, we will have more specialised robots than we will have generalised humanoid robots. And I think, you know, if you've, no one gets attached to their Roomba that cleans the floor, right? Uh, equally, I think if you have, you know, have a robot that helps you have a bath, um, or, you know, a machine that helps you have a bath, a machine that reminds you when you've forgotten to take your meds, a machine that, that washes your clothes and puts them away for you, mm-hmm. I can't see any attachment going on there, because these are individual specialized machines barely even robots in the way in which the community will think of robots like R2D2 or anything like that. And I think it would be a very strange granny to, to get a tra- attached to those sorts of uh, machines.
0: So we're talking more about non-human-like machi- robots, but more machines that help are intelligent AIDS in the house.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's how I see it going mm-hmm. uh, as, as a developer. Um, now, you know, obviously there's a whole whole s- stream of robotics research um, that's, that's making huge strides uh, in terms of humanoid robotics, where you'll combine the functionalities of all of those specialized robots that I'm talking about into, into one human robot that might look like a person. And I mean, there, we've seen some great um, examples of this at, at Davos this week. Uh, in terms of um, humanoid robots that really look very human, uh, Sophia uh, mm-hmm. up in the loft that, that we all interacted with over the course of the week. Um, that's a really interesting area. Whether or not we're going to have a you know, generalised, intelligent robot within the next 10 or 15 years that's going to be able to do that, I think that's unlikely. Mm-hmm. But perhaps with a longer time horizon, yes, you will start combining those serv- uh, all those individual specialized robot functions into into a more generalized robot that you could get attached to, and then that becomes more of an issue. But I think in the time frame we're talking about, mm-hmm. uh, in 10 years or so, I think that's unlikely. It's more of an issue sort of uh, a fair bit down the track from that.
0: So thinking in this time frame, again, uh, 10, 15 years down the line, with those robots coming and becoming part of our society, mm. uh, how do you feel about the... Regulatory frameworks that exist are they sufficient to weed out potential dangerous products that go in the market uh, And to allow for the quick inclusion of those that are safe and are going to be helpful Or do we need to do to do some work in this I suppose it's Country centric, but uh, yeah,
1: yeah, uh, look, I think work needs to be done. Uh, I think in, in any new industry whether it's it's robotics or a new form of um, you know new form of agricultural product or a new form of medicine or what have you you do need regulation to ensure that it's safe and, and can uh, can operate in a way that it is advertised. Um, there is a whole industry of um, compliance checking companies and, and verification companies and validation companies. Uh, I've got a lot of experience from my last entrepreneurial venture. of of those companies checking our uh, energy installations, checking that the wind farm's going to work and it's safe and that that it's not going to fall down and hurt anybody or, or what have you. And I think what we typically will see is that as long as we have the regulations that give the incentives and the ability for new industries uh, to engage with that community of validation and verification companies. I mean, there's, there's a whole stack of them. A lot of them from Germany, you know, beginning with TUV, TUV Sud and TUV Rheinland and Bureau Veritas and what have you. There's a, there's a whole, DNV from Denmark, there's a whole industry of these um, verification and validation industries. Um, companies that check your food, they check your tyres on your car, um, and they do that because there are regulations and people have to employ them. As long as we have regulations that say before you release a robot in, you know a robot into the community which could potentially be dangerous, it needs to be checked off by, by this industry, uh, then I think things will be fine. So the, the good news for regulators is there's already an industry there that can do it. Um, what they do need to do obviously is to set up the structure such that the companies are obligated to go through that process before releasing their, um, their machines onto the market.
0: One thing I wanted to ask you, because I know that you have uh, worked uh, for a significant amount of time uh, in the East, uh, in, in China in specific, mm. but also had uh, uh, across Asia, uh, Very good. where do you see the future of robotics in the next 10 to 15 years? Is it most people would imagine that it is in the United States? Is your opinion uh, the same or?
1: Um, well, I mean, I think we split it up uh, in terms of development and manufacturing. I think there's an enormous role uh, in the East, uh, in part because I mean you know, the electronic su- supply chain of the world uh, in a large part is in the East, uh, and therefore being proximate and close to that, I think there's a lot of advantage for developers such as August Robotics, my company, uh, in being very close by to that. Um, so I think there's a huge role for um, Asian companies in terms of the develop development of new robotic technologies. In terms of the deployment, um, I think it's less about whether a, a country is in Asia or whether it's in you know South America or North America or Europe or what have you um, yeah. I think it's more about wages right in the sense that um, you know ultimately the rationale for having robots um, the threshold is crossed a lot earlier in high wage countries than it is in lower wage countries in the sense that you know if if your, your wages are $20 an hour and the robot is going to you know, equalize out over a lifetime at $18 an hour, then that might be something that that robot will make sense to be deployed earlier in a country with a high wage structure than somewhere where, where wages are lower than that. Uh, and so, you know, I can certainly see um, Japan being an early adopter uh, with a you know, an aging population and, and high wages. Um, the US definitely as well, um, for the same reasons. <coughs> I mean, less of an ageing population, but still, you know, relatively high wages. Europe the same. Uh, I think you'll find in Asia, um, you know, the robotics revolution may come a little bit later uh, to some of the, the, the nations where, where average wages are lower, just because the point of substitutability will take, will take longer to reach from an economic standpoint. Uh, so, you know, in, in, in some, I think, huge role for Asia for, in the development and I think an, an evolving role over time, which will be uneven amongst the Asian countries in terms of deployment of robots.
0: Alex, thank you very much. This was very informative, and thank you for your time.
1: Thank you for your time, Rigas. Enjoyed it.
0: That was Alex Wyatt, founder of, and CEO of August Robotics. My name is Rigas Hadilagos, and that was all from this episode of A Glimpse Into The Future.